Good morning, once again. Good to see you all. God bless you. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11? And in our study in Matthew's Gospel, we are uh, entering today into a new section. Now, the first main section ran from chapters 1 through 10, and we entitled it The Revelation of the King. In chapters 1 through 4, we saw his person. In chapters 5 through 7, we saw his principles, otherwise known as the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 8 and 9, we were introduced to his power. Uh, power to heal diseases, power to calm the storm, power over nature and demons. And our king is God Almighty, who is someday going to reign on this earth. But he was introducing himself and uh, through his power. And then we, in chapter 10, we saw his people. Uh, we just basically looked at the 12 disciples that he called to be apostles and what that was all about. So now today we move from the revelation of the king to the rebellion against the king, which covers chapters 11 through 13. And in this section, we're going to see topics such as his messenger rejected, his works denied, his principles refused, his person attacked, and it's going to culminate in chapter 13 with his truths hidden. And we'll get to that as we go. But just suffice it to say that what is going on here is that Jesus Christ now has been introduced to the nation through John the Baptist. Then Jesus began to preach that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He began to uh, declare himself to be Messiah. Uh, He proved it by, uh, first of all, giving the principles of the kingdom. But mostly he proved his Messiahship through the power he displayed, through the power to do miracles and so on, which we've already talked about. What did that do? In essence, it put the ball in the court of the Jewish leadership. Jesus Christ made the claim that he was, in fact, the Messiah. In fact, when he started his public ministry in the Galilee, he went to the synagogue of Nazareth, where he read from the scroll of Isaiah, a very specific messianic prophecy in Isaiah 61. And after he read this prophecy all about him, he closes up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant and says, This day... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. He had just officially proclaimed himself to be the Messiah. Now, what was the Jewish leadership going to do about it? They had two choices. They could receive him and praise God that Messiah had finally come and fall at his knees and worship him and obey him as their king. Or they could reject him, which, folks, they did. In fact, we see it then manifested in the next few chapters in the rebellion against the king, a rebellion that started with the rejection of his messenger, which is John. So let's pick it up. We're only going to get through verses 1 through 6 today uh, in a section that I'm entitling John questions Jesus' Messiahship. That sounds a little strange and hang in there. We'll talk about what that means. But we pick it up in verse 1. Where it says, now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples uh, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, uh, Jesus and his disciples are still up north. They are ministering around the area of the Sea of Galilee, Chorazim, Bethsaida, uh, Capernaum, and so on. They've been up there for a while ministering, and that's what they're uh, doing. He's uh, up in the north, and he's now continuing to preach uh, and teach in these cities around the Sea of Galilee. Verse 2 says, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples to ask Jesus a question. But let me leave it there for a minute. 
when John heard, this would be John the Baptist. John the Baptist has been in prison since chapter 4, verse 12. Okay, basically, that's when we heard he was in prison. And he was put in prison by Herod. This would be Herod Antipas. He was the ruler of the area around the Galilee. Why did Herod have John thrown in prison? Well, Herod went to visit his brother Philip in Rome. And while in Rome, he really fell for Philip's wife, Herodias. So he seduced her away from Philip, brought her back home, immediately divorced his own wife and married his sister-in-law. Well, John was a pretty straight shooter. And John publicly denounced his immorality. He called him on it publicly. Well, you know, Herod didn't appreciate that, so he responded by having John arrested and thrown into the dungeon in the fortress of Machaerus, which is in the mountains near the Dead Sea. This is a mountain fortress, and uh, they had some dungeons in there. You can imagine what they were like, right? Uh, All by the Dead Sea in this desert environment, you know. This would have been a terrible punishment for any man. But it was especially unbearable for John the Baptist. You have to understand, all of his life, he had pretty much grown up and lived in the wilderness, with the, you know, in the wide open spaces, okay, with the wind you know, blowing in his face at night. He had the stars for a ceiling, the ground for his bed. You know, he was used to being an outdoorsman. And now all of a sudden he finds himself restricted to these four narrow walls of this dark, dingy, depressing dungeon. I mean, you know, for anybody, that would have been a terrible fate. But for John, who probably had never lived in a house and now finds himself in a dungeon, it was especially agonizing. And we read in verses 2 and 3 once again, And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? You know, a lot of people wonder how John could have doubted whether or not Jesus was truly the Messiah. I mean, John was the guy who introduced him to the world. John was the guy who proclaimed Jesus as Messiah. I mean, what happened here, okay? I mean, John was his forerunner. You know, when John was uh, baptizing in the wilderness... At one point, the Jewish leadership from Jerusalem sent a delegation of Pharisees and scribes down there to Jordan to ask John, who are you? Okay, who are you? Are you the Messiah? He says, no. All right, well, are you uh, Elijah? Because, you know, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the last thing God promised was he was going to send Elijah before the coming of Messiah. So they figure, well, if you're not Messiah... Maybe you're Elijah. So are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not. All right, well, are you the prophet Moses told us was coming? Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, you know, uh, God's going to raise up a prophet like me someday. Listen to what he has to say. So they said, you you must be the prophet, right, that Moses spoke about. John says, no. (laughs) Well, who are you? We've got to tell the people that sent us, who are you? What do you say about yourself? And John quoted the prophecy from Isaiah 40, verse 3, He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. John was quoting a messianic prophecy. He knew that. He knew that the prophet Isaiah had prophesied that before Messiah, the king, would come, God would send a herald before him. It was very common in those days for a king, before he visited a certain area of his kingdom, 
that he, a, a herald would be dispatched. A herald. What, what did this herald do? Well, he announced the king was coming. You know, you've got the two weeks. The king's coming. Like, clean up your yards. Get the trash picked up, you know, and fix those fences. Paint that house over there. And let's prepare for the coming of the king, right? Well, John was the forerunner or the herald of the king of kings. And John went out and basically said, don't, don't, I'm not worried about your houses. I'm, wor- I'm worried about your hearts. Prepare your hearts to receive the king, right? So repent. Clean your heart up. Okay? Put away your sin. The king is coming. Prepare for the coming of Messiah. So John knew who he was. John knew what his ministry was all about. Although initially, as we read the scriptures, he didn't really know who the Messiah was until Jesus came to John to be baptized by him. Because when Jesus came up out of the waters of the Jordan, we read how the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove and rested upon him. And John said, He who sent me to baptize said, The one upon whom the Spirit descends and remains, he is the Messiah. So from that time forward, John began to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and pointed to him constantly saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what happened? Why now the ambivalence on John's part? All right, I mean, he knows who Jesus is. He knows who he is. He's the forerunner. Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, what made John begin to doubt the validity of Jesus' Messiahship? Well, the answer to that question lies in what every Jew was taught about the Messiah from the time they were children. The Jews believed that when Messiah came, he would lead a revolt against Rome, break the yoke of Roman oppression. I mean, Rome was the world empire at this time. And Israel was was under Roman domination and occupation. And the Jews chafed under this because they believed they were God's people and they had no king but the Lord himself. So for them to be subject to an earthly king and Caesar to boot, who was immoral, they were absolutely incensed by that. And they believed Messiah, when he came, was going to lead them in a revolt against Rome, throw off the yoke of Roman oppression, and he was going to establish a kingdom on the earth a kingdom of peace and prosperity, and the Messiah himself would reign from Jerusalem over this kingdom, which was spread across the entire world, and the Jewish people would be his prime ministers. And this, folks, was no doubt in John's mind when Herod first threw him into that dungeon. I can imagine, if this is your mindset, right, and you really believe Jesus is the Messiah, and you know that when Messiah comes, he's going to, you know, establish the kingdom and so on, I'm sure as the guards were taking John to that dungeon cell, in John's mind, and he might have verbalized it. John was a pretty verbal guy, right? He might have verbalized it and said something like, fine, I don't care. Stick me in the dungeon. (laughs) Messiah's here. You guys are about to get it. All right? I mean, the scriptures say he's going to open the prison doors and set the captives free. So go ahead, stick me in the prison if you want. All right? Messiah's here. He's about to... Hand you guys your lunch, basically, so I'm not worried, all right? Bring it on. And so I'm sure as John is sitting in that dungeon, you know, each day he's excited. Oh, today's the day. But day after day, week after week, month after month, John is stuck in this dingy, dark, depressing dungeon. And so finally he sends word to Jesus via two two of his disciples. Now let me paraphrase what I think John is asking the Lord. He is saying to him, what's going on? What's, what's going on? 
I mean, you're the Messiah, right? I've been telling everybody you're the Messiah. I mean, if you're the Messiah, why am I still in prison? Well, I mean, why haven't you led us in a revolt against Rome? I mean, what's happening? I mean, I saw the Spirit descend on you, and, and I know that that was what the God the Father said was the sign. So why am I still in prison? Why haven't you acted the way we believe you're supposed to act? You know what John did? He let his circumstances beat the faith out of him. Don't be too hard on John. Because all of us at times, he let our circumstances beat the faith out of us. I mean, you ever feel like that? You ever feel like you are a prisoner of your circumstances and you can't figure out what God is doing and why he hasn't set you free yet? You've been a prisoner of a bad marriage for a long time. And when you got saved, you were convinced the Lord was going to save your spouse immediately. And so you began to pray for him or her. And as time has gone on, day after day, week after week, month after month, and sometimes year after year, you're thinking, God, what's going on? I mean, you're the one who said that you want to set the captives free, right? I mean, my husband, my wife. I mean, Lord, why haven't you set the why why am I still a prisoner of these of this bad marriage? Or Lord, why am I a prisoner still of a bad habit? I mean, Lord, I've been in bondage to alcohol and drugs for so long. Lord, I mean, I, I believe in you, I love you. Why why am I still in this prison? Why haven't you set me free? And so John began to doubt. And he began to tell the Lord, in essence, are you really who I believed you were? Or should I start looking for someone else who can solve the problems that I'm facing in my life? You know, a lot of people have done that. They have come to Jesus looking for him to fix all their problems. Now, let me tell you something. If you really give your heart to Christ, he is going to fix a whole bunch of problems. The biggest one is the problem of hell. Let me tell you something. If you really give your heart to Christ, he'll fix a whole bunch of problems, but the devil's going to give you a whole bunch of new ones. And you know what? Things are not going to always work out the way you want. But Christianity is not something like you enter into like you would uh, buying a car, we'll say. Where you walk around the car, look at it, looks pretty good, kick the tires, take it for a test drive. Hey, performs pretty good. I like the way I feel in it. Rides nice. I'm going to sign at the bottom line. Christianity is a lifelong commitment. When you enter into it, you better do it knowing that God has never promised us freedom from all pain. And you know what? I think sometimes people have that impression that when I became a Christian, man, God was going to keep me. He was going to protect me from all the adversities, all the hardships in life. That isn't true. And I'll tell you what, sometimes people even want to say, you know, I've given God a chance. Uh, I'm done with this Christianity thing. I've seen people walk away because God didn't perform the way they expected him to. God didn't come through for them the way they wanted him to. And so you know what? They get angry at God, decide, I don't need God. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'll try something. Maybe those Mormons or maybe those, you know, those New Agers, they got, they got the answer. Look, I don't believe a lot of those folks were ever saved, actually. But I'm not saying that you can't be a true Christian and not wrestle with doubt at times. I mean, if you look at some of the greatest characters in the Bible, they all had moments when their faith seemed to waver. Men like Abraham, Moses, Elijah, David, just to name a few, right? And here we see John, who was no different. And John was no lightweight, by the way. Jesus is going to go on to tell us in this chapter, he was the greatest of all the prophets. Even great men and women of God can waver at times. 
In verse 4 we read, Jesus answered and said to them, to John's disciples, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What did Jesus do here? How did the Lord deal with John's doubts? Well, if you notice, he didn't answer John's question directly, did he? He simply pointed him back to the scriptures to strengthen his faith. Romans 10:17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You see, when Jesus told John's disciples, look, you go tell John the things that you see in here. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In saying this, Jesus was pointing John back to the prophecies of Scripture. Those that foretold that when Messiah came, this is what he would do. This is how you would know him. Because even in John's day, there were a lot of false messiahs. A lot of people had come before Jesus and came after Jesus who claimed to be the Messiah. And God knew that the devil was going to flood Israel with false messiahs. He's still flooding the world with false messiahs. So God said, look, this is how you're going to know the true Messiah that I send you. He's going to have the power to do these miracles. And so Jesus pointed John back to the scriptures, to the prophecies that God had given to the prophets about what Messiah would do when he came on the scene. Jesus told John's disciples to tell John, look, the, the blind see. That comes out of Isaiah 35, verse 5. He said the lame walk. That comes out of Isaiah 35, verse 6. Lepers are cleansed. That was a prophecy about Messiah's ministry. That comes out of Isaiah 53, verse 4. He said the deaf hear. That comes out of Isaiah 35, verse 5. Here's a good one. The dead are raised up. Now, that isn't prophesied in the Old Testament about Messiah. But that's the most spectacular of all the miracles, right? Greater than, you know, causing the blind to see and the mute to speak and so on. This would be further undeniable evidence that Messiah was, in fact, God's messenger, God's king. Jesus also reminded John that the gospel is being preached to the poor in fulfillment of the messianic prophecy in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. And then Jesus adds in verse 6, And blessed is he who was not offended because of me. The word offended there comes from a Greek word that we get our word scandalized from. It means to stumble. John was stumbling. Why was John stumbling? Well, think about it for a second. I think John was saying, you know, Lord, are you, the, are you really the Messiah? Because, you know, I've been going out telling everybody you're the Messiah. You know, I mean, I put my name on the line for you. All right? And, and, you know, you're not coming through. For me. You're, you're giving me a bad name now. I mean, you know, I've been telling the whole, everybody, you know, well, listen to me, you're the Messiah. Now, you know, you're not acting like the Messiah, though. You know, this happens thus. Can you be offended by the Lord? It happens all the time. You witness the people. You want to see him saved. So you're going to present Jesus like a, you're like a salesman for Jesus. Oh, you got to come to Jesus. Oh, he's going to fix your problems. Oh, he's going to do this. He's going to bless, you know. And we're selling Jesus because we want, to, we want to make a sale. We have good intentions. We want to see him saved, right? But then they receive Jesus. And for a while, it's pretty good. Uh-huh. Jesus, right? And all of a sudden, the ceiling collapses on them. Adversity strikes. And then what are they doing? They're going to you and going, thanks. I, I, it was easier before I became a Christian. 
And what are you feel? You're feeling embarrassed that God has let you down. Lord, here I'm going out telling people about you and look at you letting them suffer like this. Look, and don't ever forget this. God is always working for our eternal good, never our temporal comfort. He may bless us in the temporal, but he will always sacrifice the temporal for the eternal. If you don't see it in that light, you're going to be scandalized when the Lord doesn't treat you or the people you've witnessed to the way you think he should. Remember that. That's why Paul said, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And now, for the first time in our life as Christians, before we got saved, we didn't. We weren't seated in the heavenlies. We saw everything from the perspective of earth. Our whole frame of reference was this life. Once we get saved, God takes us up to the heavenlies and begins to see, show us what he sees. And we begin to see life from the eternal perspective. And as such, we begin to see that God will always sacrifice temporal comfort to bring about the best eternity for a person. Keep that in mind as we close, which we're not doing yet, but keep that in mind. But you know, again, John, John doubted. And there are many Christians who want to find fault with John for doubting. In fact, a lot of Christians claim that John's doubt is an embarrassment. I mean, John, you know, it's an embarrassment to Christians everywhere because a true child of God should never doubt, they say. But it's important to realize, and don't miss this, that Jesus did not rebuke John for his question, did he? Not even in verse 6. That was a beatitude, wasn't it? Rebuke. Jesus never rebuked John for his doubts that led to a honest question. He simply sought to strengthen John's faith by pointing him back to God's word. There is a difference between honest doubt and willful unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind where we cannot understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. Unbelief is a matter of the will where we refuse to believe God's word and obey what he is telling us to do. Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong, wrote Oswald Chambers. It may be a sign that he is thinking. Look, honest doubts that lead to sincere questions are never looked down upon by the Lord, but instead are used by him to strengthen our faith in his goodness and ultimately in his greatness. Now listen to me. In John's case, his question wasn't born out of willful unbelief, but of doubt nourished by physical and emotional strain you know often when we're at our weakest point physically and emotionally the devil will attack us I mean, he always waits till we're at our most vulnerable to really attack and when we're at a low point or a weak point physically and or emotionally he often attacks us and he attacks us with doubts about god's goodness about his character about his love about his wisdom about his very plan for our life and when that happens guys what you need to do is Don't entertain that. You run to the word of God for comfort and strength. I like to run to the Psalms. I mean, when the devil hammers on me, you know, and gets me to, and it's not that I'm doubting God. It's just that, Lord, I really don't understand what you're doing here. I'm I'm going through this prolonged trial. And God, I know you never would abandon me. Your word promises me that. But, Lord, I just, I need a little comfort right now. I like to run to the Psalms. I relate to the 
psalmist in so many places because they struggled. Yet God ministered to their hearts. And it really blesses me to hear how God ministered to them and what God said to them. Look, run to the word for comfort. I like Jeremiah 29, 11, where the people of Israel were going through a very difficult time. And they were doubting whether God was with them or what God had in mind for them. Does God really have our best at heart? And God responded by saying, Look, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. In the scriptures, it says God's thoughts, if they were numbered, are more than the stars of heaven. Did God forget about me? No. God is thinking about you constantly. God says, I know the thoughts that I'm thinking toward you, says the Lord. They're thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I'm working. Trust me. Paul reaffirmed this in Romans 8.28 when he said, All things are working together for good. We know it. To those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. Although sometimes our circumstances can become pretty severe. I'll tell you what. One of the greatest examples of someone who found himself in a circumstance that caused him to doubt God's goodness and wisdom was Job. Job. You know, in the first chapter of the book of Job, we're introduced to Job. And God himself calls Job the most righteous man on the face of the earth, right? Now, that's important for us to know that because if we did not know that, we'd be prone to think he was getting hammered by God for immorality too, or sin. But God says, no, no, Job was the most righteous man on the face of the earth, a man who loved God and kept his commandments. But then later, it seems like over the course of a few minutes, Job, who was a wealthy man and a godly man, loses all of his material possessions. All his kids were killed. His health and his reputation were lost. To make matters worse, his good friends, instead of comforting him, tried to tell him, well, Job, you're getting pounded by the Lord. This is judgment. You're, you're harboring some sin. Now, come on. Come clean. God will forgive you. And then furthermore, in all of this, is Job is crying out to God. God, why is this happening? I mean... I've always tried to do what's right. I've, I've tried to honor you. I've tried to, to always do what pleases you. Lord, why am I going through this? God is strangely silent with Job. doesn't answer his questions. And finally, Job becomes frustrated, and the tone of his questions begins to change from a sincere question to a veiled accusation. You know, there's two ways we can ask God a question. We can say, Lord, why? And God may answer us and show us why we're going through some things. Or a person could say, why, God? That's not an honest question. That's an accusation. Listen to me. Sincere questions God invites, veiled accusations he rebukes. And so Job's questions became more accusatory. So that when God finally did speak to Job, he rebukes him, right? At the end of the book, God appears to Job in a whirlwind, right? You remember the story. And instead of answering Job's questions, God begins to ask him a series of questions. Don't forget now, Job has been basically accusing God of not being good, not being wise, of not treating him the way he deserved because I've been righteous. So in Job 38, verses 2 and 3, God said, said to Job, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? 
Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. You're going to question me, Job? Let me ask you a few questions. Now, you can read these final chapters on your own. I just took some of the questions that God asked Job. Give you a little flavor, okay, of what the Lord asked Job. He said to him, first of all, where were you, buddy, when I laid the, that was a paraphrase, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I caused the seas to birth forth and established their boundaries, saying to them, This far you may come and no further? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the shadow of death? Because Job at one point says, I I just wish I was dead so I could be at peace. God says, Oh, have you ever been past the gates of death that you know it's peace there? Can you hold back the movement of the stars, Job? Are you able to to restrain the Pleiades or Orion? Can you ensure the proper sequence of the seasons or guide the constellation of the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Can you shout to the clouds and make it rain? Can you make lightning appear and cause it to strike as you direct it? Do you provide food for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air? Job? Do you appoint the time when the bear and the deer bring forth their young? Have you, have you given the horses strength? Does the hawk fly by your wisdom? Or does the eagle mount up by your command? Do you understand how I made each of the animals on the earth and why I gave them unique instincts that caused them to behave the way that they do? In Job 40, verse 2, God said, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Are you God's critic? But you have the answers, right, Job? Job said to the Lord, I'm nothing. All right. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. Well, that's what Job should have done before he shot his mouth off. See, that's what we always should do. Before we bring, you know, these ridiculous accusations against a holy and righteous God, because he hasn't performed the way we expect him to, Job said, I'm going to shut up now, Lord. Okay. I'm going to cover my mouth. I've already said too much. I have nothing more to say. God said, no, no, no. I'm not finished with you yet, Job. I have some more questions to ask you. Are you as strong as me? Can you see into the hearts of all who live upon the earth to humble the proud and punish the wicked? Can you tame the behemoth with his bones like bronze, his ribs like iron, and his tail like a cedar tree? Or can you control Leviathan? with his terrible teeth and the fire that goes forth from his mouth, who laughs at the spear and makes the sea boil like a pot with his huge size. Well, Job responds to all of this in Job chapter 42 by saying, first of all, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you, Lord. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about things far too wonderful for me. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. You notice that God never answered Job's questions as to why he was suffering so? If he had answered Job's question, he would only satisfy him for a little while until there was another question, and then another, and another and another. The questions would have never ended. Instead, God in his wisdom gave Job something better than answers. He gave him himself. 
He gave Job his presence and reminded him of his power and wisdom, which is how God deals with all our doubts. He points us back to himself, to his character, to his wisdom, to his power, and especially to his promises in his word, that he is a good God who loves us more than we can ever know. So that when bad things happen, it isn't because God doesn't love us. It's because we're living in a bad world. Before first service, one of our ladies came up to me. And apparently she's friends with the mother of that little boy who was killed in that boating accident a few days ago up in the Channel Lakes area. I guess he was being pulled behind a boat under an inner tube and he fell off the inner tube and somebody didn't see him in the water and ran the boat over him, hit him and killed him. And so this mother grieved. I can't even imagine what she's going through. Said to one of our gals, who knew she was a Christian, you tell me why God allowed this. Was that an honest question or a veiled accusation? I don't know. And this lady fumbled around and tried to give her an answer and felt very inadequate. And so she said to me, I, I just didn't know what to say. What would you have said to that woman? I said, well, first of all, she's hurting. And if she would have asked that to me, I would have said to her, do you want... A straight answer? Or do you want me to kind of dance around the issue? She would have probably said, give it to me straight. And when I would have said, look, first of all, your son is with the Lord. He's with Jesus. But why would God take him? Why would God punish him? God didn't punish your son. It's not punishment to go from this earth of struggle, hardship, pain, and suffering into the presence of God where there's fullness of joy. That's not punishment. But let me tell you what. This is not the world God created us to live in. He didn't make this world this way. He gave us a perfect world, a paradise, where he put Adam and Eve in and told them that everything would bring forth after its kind. They wouldn't have to work through the sweat of their brow to produce food. Everything, the garden would bring forth plenty of food. All they would have to do is just enjoy it and enjoy God's fellowship. But they rebelled against God's one prohibition to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when they did that, they fell. And God's creation fell. And suddenly this world was turned into something God never intended it to be. It's manifestly wrong to look out into this world, a world that's populated with evil, injustice, tragedy, and say, if God was a good God, why did he make this? He didn't make that. He made a perfect environment, but gave us a free will. And mankind exercised his free will in rebellion against God, and this is what brought this mess upon us. Yeah, but why are we being punished for Adam's sin, people say. Well, I'll tell you what. Stop living in rebellion like Adam and let God bless your life. Oh, well, you know, they want to blame Adam, but they prove that they're Adam's kids every day by living in rebellion. I did, you know. I would have told that mother, look, the pain and the suffering and the sorrow and the death is not something God wanted for us in this life. We chose it because of our rebellion. And now God is not above using it to work for our eternal best. That little guy is with the Lord. But if by taking him home to be with him, it causes you as his parents 
and his relatives and his neighbors and his schoolmates to begin to ask, what is life really all about? In the hopes that they will find the Lord and receive Christ and are given the gift of eternal life, where now when they die, they will be with him forever in his kingdom. If God has to use tragedy now to bring us to the best eternity he can bring us to, he'll do that. No, that doesn't comfort everybody. It's the truth, though. It's the truth. Look, as we wrap this up, when you suddenly lose a loved one, or you receive word that you've got a serious illness, when your finances crash or your marriage fails or your career ends, listen to me. Do you want an answer? Do you want the answer? See, in times of suffering and adversity, understand that Jesus Christ is with you if you're a believer. He said he would never leave you nor forsake you. The devil wants you to think he's abandoned you. You've got to go to the Word to find out. He said, I will never abandon you. And even in our darkest moments, he is with us. Not to give us answers, but to be our answer. He understands our pain. The scriptures say he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief and suffering. And folks, the most important lesson I can leave with you this morning when it comes to suffering and heartache is the lesson that God taught John and Job. In life, there are going to be many painful experiences. And we may never know all the whys. And even if we did, it wouldn't satisfy us anyways. But if we know God and we seek his presence, it's going to be more satisfying than if God had answered a thousand whys for us. When I go to, go to a hospital to be with somebody who is dying, somebody who only has hours left to live, you know, at that moment, they don't really want to know why. And they certainly don't want me to try to tell them why they're dying. At that moment, all that matters is for me to assure them that they're Christians, that God loves them, that Jesus is with them, and they're about to be delivered from a body of death to be brought into his glorious presence. And if they're an unbeliever, I offer them that hope. That's all they care about. Really, folks, when it comes down to it, that's really all that matters in life, that you know God, know where you're going to spend eternity. You know, people find that out just hours before death. If we could just adopt that mindset and live our whole lives by that philosophy, that nothing else matters but Jesus. The material possessions, the career, nothing matters but Jesus. Because this is all going to be over with soon. And only Jesus is real. And only his kingdom is forever. Jesus never promised us, though, freedom from difficult times or pain or heartache. In fact, he promised us that in the world we were going to have tribulation. And the book of Job tells us that man was born for adversity as sure as the sparks of a fire fly upwards. This is just the way it is. But he also promised us that he would be with us and that his peace would always be available to us. And that someday, and I believe someday soon, he's going to come for his church at a time when we're not even thinking. The trumpet's going to blow, the angel's going to shout, and the voice of the Lord's going to say, come up here. And as he takes us instantly into his presence, we are going to be transformed. This mortal is going to put on immortality. This corruption is going to put on incorruption. This body is going to be made 
perfect and glorified. And at that time, he's going to deliver us from all heartache, all sorrow, all tears, all suffering, and death itself. Until that time, we need to draw close to him. We need to find our strength in his word and among his people. I'm so thankful for the body of Christ. When one of us suffers tragedy or adversity, the others rush to their side to pray for them, to encourage them, to remind them our God is still on the throne. His promises will never fail. We may have heartache for the night, but joy is coming in the morning. So remember that. Even godly people can doubt once in a while. But let it drive you closer to God, not farther from him. Father, we thank you that you're a God who loves us beyond anything we, we could even imagine. We thank you, Lord, that your word is true, that your promises are sure, and that there is coming a day when this world of man's rebellion and all the injustice, the evil, the pain, the heartache, and death itself will be wiped away and will be no more. And all that will remain is a kingdom of life and joy and peace forever. So, Lord, give us that mindset now. That when adversity strikes, it doesn't make us bitter. It makes us better by drawing us closer to you. Father, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.